0: A reading from the first chapter of the book of Genesis, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars, God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky. Along the ground. Everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing, and on the seventh day, He rested from all His work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth, when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. reading from the 28th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, beginning with the 16th verse. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Trinity Sunday has been observed since sometime in the 10th century. That's a long time, isn't it? That's at least 1,200 years ago. It serves to remind the church that the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is central to who we are. That it is not just mere speculation. It's central to our understanding of God. In the United Methodist Church, we've maintained this doctrine by preserving by keeping the articles of religion that the Reverend John Wesley sent over to the first Methodist in the United States in 1784. The Constitution of our church says that these articles shall not be revoked, altered, or changed. And if you're interested, you can read those articles on our website. You can go to the Beliefs tab, and at the bottom of the page, you'll see a red button that says, What We Believe, if you click on that it will open all 29 articles of religion of the United Methodist Church. Article 1 of Faith in the Holy Trinity reads this way, There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body or parts, infinite in power, wisdom, and goodness the Maker and Preserver of all things, both visible and invisible, and in unity of this Godhead. There are three persons of one substance, power and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I wonder, did you notice that when Jesus instructed us to baptize, He said, in the name of, not in the names of, did you catch that? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One name. One name. In confirmation classes, I teach kids a simple way to remember the Trinity. It's three stripes, one shoe. See that? That's not really it. It's three persons, one being. Say that with me. Three persons in one being. I've already told you as we started worship why that matters. Because God is three persons in one being, we can be unconditionally loved even beyond our failures. The Athanasian Creed was developed by the early church to try to give us all a way to speak of this mystery of the Holy Trinity. And this will not be the most exciting thing I've ever done for you. So please, hold on. Give your ear to it. This is how the ancient church defined the Trinity. Whoever wants to be saved should cling to the Catholic faith. Now this is the Catholic faith. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. But the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. What the Father is, the Son is. And so is the Holy Spirit. Uncreated is the Father. Uncreated is the Son. Uncreated is the Spirit. The Father is infinite. The Son is infinite. The Holy Spirit is infinite. Eternal is the Father. Eternal is the Son. Eternal is the Spirit. And yet, there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal. As there are not three uncreated and unliving beings, but one who is uncreated and unlimited. Almighty is the Father. Almighty is the Son. Almighty is the Spirit. And yet there are not three almighty beings, but one who is almighty. Thus the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. Thus the Father is Lord. The Son is Lord. The Holy Spirit is Lord. And yet there are not three lords but one Lord. As Christian truth compels us to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son was neither made nor created, but was alone begotten of the Father." The Spirit was neither made nor created, but is proceeding from the Father and the Son. Thus there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three spirits, and this, and in this Trinity no one is before or after, greater or less than the other. But all three persons are in themselves, co-eternal and co-equal. And so we must worship the Trinity in unity and the one God in three persons. Whoever wants to be saved should thus think about the Trinity. So much for the early church being stupid, huh? Sometimes when people speak about the way those, those early fathers of the church in the 300s and 400s helped to develop our faith when they read the Scriptures. They say that they were, they were conniving, they were setting themselves up for power, or they were just ignorant people who were full of myth. Does that sound like the construction of an ignorant people to you? But we might wonder, how did the early leaders of the church conclude that God is three persons in one being what led to that it wasn't just them pumping up their imagination and seeking things to say basically there were biblical texts like the one that we read today in Matthew that if you just read it and don't think about it you can miss what is happening but the early church was reading it and thinking about it because it wasn't new it was new to them It wasn't something they had heard in church their whole life. And they wrestled with the implications of what they read in this text in Matthew. And that, dear ones, is how the creed came to be by wrestling with the scriptures themselves. Scriptures that create a tension that has to be explained. In the reading from Genesis, we hear of God's Spirit hovering over the waters. We're told plainly that the Spirit of God was involved in creation in John's Gospel. We hear that Jesus was involved, that everything that was made was made through and for the Son. And then from the Apostle... In Corinthians, we hear the early creedal formula. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Those are not just words. They are an extended formulation of saying, God be with you. Using the very same name that Jesus said we should baptize in. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And again, in Matthew, did we not just hear Jesus say, I will be with you always? Is that something that a mortal person can say? Is that something that any of us can say to any of our loved ones? I will be with you forever? If we say it, we know it's a lie. But yet they received this promise from Jesus as truth. Oh, and then there's this in the text. That's easy to just read over. Some of Jesus' disciples actually fell down and worshiped him. Now, we read right over that. We say, oh, of course they did. But when that was first written, when the story was first told that human beings had fallen at the feet of another human being and worshiped him, it was scandalous. any first century devout Jew would have known very well that worship is for God alone. The early church had to wonder what it meant that Jesus of Nazareth, Himself, a devout Jew, allowed other human beings to worship Him. They wrestled with that. The word worship translates the Greek word proskuneoson from the Greek word proskuneo. I think every Christian should know that word. Say it with me. Proskuneo. It means fall down and worship. In the ancient Greek, it was used for falling down and kissing the ground in homage to the gods of the underworld. It was a serious thing to do, which is why you should not kiss the ground when you get off an airplane. That's where that idea comes from, I think. I don't know that for sure. But that's what the word has in it. To fall on your face and kiss the ground towards something else. And we're told that they did that to Jesus. And there are other similar texts where this word is used in the same way. In John 4.20, we just heard it a few weeks ago. The Samaritan woman at the well said to Jesus, Our ancestor proskuneo on this mountain. But you Jews say the place where people must proskuneo is Jerusalem. And perhaps the most widely known New Testament use of the verb occurs in the fourth chapter of Matthew. Now I'm sure some of you know what happens in the fourth chapter of Matthew. There we read that Jesus is sent out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, that the Holy Spirit drives him out to be tempted by the devil. First, the devil tempts him to make bread and satisfy his hunger. Then he tempts him to prove his identity by jumping off the temple. And each time Jesus refused. And lastly, Satan tempted Jesus with all authority and power in this world. Listen to what he said. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to Jesus, all of these I will give you if you will proskuneo me. If you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. And I hope you're listening. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Proskuneo. The Lord your God and serve only Him. It doesn't matter if we translate proskuneo as worship or throw a hammer. Because Jesus says you don't throw a hammer at anybody but God. You don't proskuneo anyone but God. And He's not speaking on His own. The first century readers of, of Matthew's words, those Jewish Christians who read it the first time, would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. He was referring to the Shema in the sixth sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. A Hebrew word that means here. It's the core of Judaism, the Shema. It's the core of our spiritual heritage. You've heard it before. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. By making a reference to that portion of the scriptures, Jesus reminds us that proskuneo is for God only because obeisance, obeisance and worship, whether by our heart, our soul, and our mind, belong only to God. Yet, when Jesus met his disciples on that mountain, what did they do? They fell down and worshipped him. They proskuneo Jesus. The one whom they had heard say, proskuneo is for God alone. They worshipped Him. They worshipped the same Jesus who had rebuked Satan for suggesting that Jesus worship a being other than the one true God. And get this, this is what I love about the text. Jesus did not make them stop. Did you notice that? The only way that can be acceptable, the only reason that Jesus might have allowed them to worship Him is if, as the Athanasian Creed said, He is Lord. He is God. Otherwise, I believe he would have rebuked them and told them to stop. The same way that Peter told Cornelius to stop. I am just a man like you. And then we had that other wonderful word in Matthew that I'm sure was on the minds of those who formed the creed. An angel comes to Joseph and says, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. And as you've heard in a hundred million Christmas sermons, that means God with us. So what Jesus did when he didn't make those disciples get up is affirm that he was Emmanuel, God with us. And that, dear ones, is why the doctrine of the Holy Trinity matters. Jesus is not just God abandoning heaven and coming to us, as the modalists say, but He is God Almighty. He is the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in bodily form, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work in the world to bring about new creation. And so He allows them to fall at His feet and worship Him and says that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given him because he was obedient to the Father. What the devil offered was a shortcut. But Jesus says it's not right to proskuneo anyone but God. And here in this text today, Jesus allows those disciples to proskuneo him. These, dear ones, these are the kinds of things that the early church wrestled with as it formulated this doctrine of a holy trinity. It's not just words speak for preachers, it's for all of us. It's a promise that God does not need us in order to love, and so we can be unconditionally loved by a God who comes to die on a cross for us. The worship of Jesus by those disciples And these other things that I have mentioned were but part of the evidence that led to the formation of this doctrine of the Holy Trinity, the right belief that God is three persons in one being. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity is not a problem to be solved. It is a mystery to be pondered in love and awe. A mystery that has shaped the life of the church for 1900 years. It is a confession that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in this name I have spoken to you. Amen.